In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. Amen. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, we started with the moment of the resurrection, and then primarily focused on the experience, if you remember, of St. Mary Magdalene in the tomb, where the tomb all of a sudden became a tabernacle of meeting between her and her God. Okay? And that's how we finalize things. And in the first sermon after Pascha, the first week after Pascha, which was always considered St. Thomas Sunday, right? We see our Lord appear to His disciples when they're locked behind closed doors. We visited all of that. We're not going to look in depth at that, but we need to start with that today to see our Lord's continuing ministry because what we're going to look at today, the focus is going to be this as we conclude this brief series, is this. We're going to look at the revelation of Christ's body that He gave to them and how the fathers speak to us that it shows us the greatest of all hopes, our resurrected body, from what they behold in Christ. Then we're going to look at his, in that room, we're going to look at his commissioning of the disciples who had become apostles. And then from there, we're going to take a brief time just to go to Galilee and to see our Lord Jesus Christ reveal himself and, and be with his disciples there on the Sea of Galilee. So we begin with the Gospel of St. John in chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. This is the experience before Thomas with the resurrected Jesus that the disciples would have. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I want to remind us one of the teachings the church fathers gave us. We spoke about this. I mentioned it even this morning. St. Cyril of Alexandria. When Christ greeted His holy disciples with the words, Peace be with you, by peace of course He meant Himself. For Christ's presence always brings us to tranquility of soul. And there is nothing else in this life that will provide the depth of tranquility to the soul than the presence of Christ being with us, as I even talked about in my own life this week. But I've ex- we've all experienced this from time to time. But how often we keep straying, seeking pleasure or relief or comfort or distractions, suffering in Christ. Every time we do, tranquility is to finish. Christ alone the truth of his people. As he's with Hang on one second, did I miss something? (coughs) 
I thought I had more slide. Forgive me. Let me go to it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, folks, we're having some technical difficulties. Okay. So Christ's resurrected body and our resurrected body, Christ granted the experience to His disciples of the resurrected body, and it was to instruct them, it was to inform them, and it was to give them great joy of what would lie ahead for all who remain in the one who is the resurrection and the life. To look upon Christ is to discover our greatest and most joyful hope, to see our future and our eternal reality. And this was experienced of all who encountered Christ after His resurrection. It was granted to them so that we, after the ascension, could be given the same joy and hope that they had and could continue to have. Let's hear from St. Augustine and St. Gregory on this experience. St. Augustine, we must, hold for, uh, we must hold most firmly that point on which the statement of the Holy Scriptures is truthful and clear, namely, that these visible and earthly bodies that are now called natural will be spiritual in the resurrection of the faithful and righteous. But I do not know how the character of a spiritual body, unknown as it is to us, can be either comprehended or taught. Certainly, there will be no corruption in them. For, and for this reason, they will not then need this corruptible food that they now need. They will nonetheless be able to take in and consume such food not out of need. Otherwise, the Lord would not have taken food after His resurrection. Remember, Jesus multiple times eats with His disciples. We saw it on the road to Emmaus where He sat down with them. We also will see it later on in Galilee when he's with his disciples and they're fishing and they catch the fish and then they have breakfast together. Okay? But it's not out of need. It's no longer out of need that this happens. St. Gregory the Great. But because the faith of those who beheld it wavered concerning the body they could see, he showed them at once his hands and his side, offering them the body that he brought in through the closed doors to touch. By this action, he revealed two wonderful and, according to human reason, quite contradictory things. He showed them that after his resurrection, his body was both incorruptible and yet could be touched. Listen to what we're hearing from the fathers on the, his resurrected body and what they're saying about ours. First, our body will be touchable, physical in that way just as our Lord Jesus Christ was. But it's, phys- it's going to be physical and touchable without the, any of the detrimental effects and impacts that the fall had on the human creation. Remember this, in paradise, we were physical and spiritual, all of it together. But there was no corruption, there was no death, there was nothing giving out on us. There was no weariness, there was no anxiousness. All of these things, but we will have that restored to us, what we had in paradise. And secondly, our bodies will be incorruptible. 
There will be no damage left from the fall. The results of the fall of mankind where death and decay entered into the world, they have been healed and restored in the person of Jesus Christ. Only by His death and His resurrection taking on that eternal body and ascending and keeping it there in heaven. How many of you remember what Revelation says? When we see Jesus Christ in heaven, we're going to see Him like the disciples as the Lamb who was slain. We're going to see the scars. We're going to see physical person Jesus Christ. He, the Word of God who took on flesh never again will let go of the flesh within Himself, taking it upon Himself. But it will be that which is redeemed that the disciples are seeing. We will see Him just in that manner for all eternity. And just consider this when it comes to our resurrected body. If there's no results of the fall, then there is no illness. There are no joints and organs that need to be replaced over time. In other words, we don't need our 100,000-mile checkup in heaven, right? No slowing down, no falling apart, no exhaustion and weariness. You look at Christ. What's that? Carbs don't matter. Carbs don't matter. Thanks be to you. That's, see, that's, that's the salvation, right? Right there. <laughs> Carbs don't matter. But I do want to say something about the scars of our Lord that He sees. In that room, the disciples beheld the scars on Christ's hands, feet, and His side. And St. Thomas, later on in that second visitation, had the blessing of physically touching them. Right? But the fathers make it very, very clear to us that the scars that the disciples saw were no longer active wounds, unhealed, causing pain and suffering, infection, discomfort, even death. This is not what they saw. They saw the scars. And the scars, what do scars testify to? They testify to past wounds, but they testify to present and future what? Healing. Always. Always. My friends, this should give us such incredible hope not just for our future bodies, but even for right now as we journey through this life, what can be because of Christ our God and His healing. There's not one of us who going through this world does not endure wounds of all different kinds, physical, emotional, spiritual, of body, mind, and soul, and these wounds they're either self-inflicted wounds by the choices that we make by our own will, departing the order of God. The wounds can be made by the fallenness of others who inflict their wound, wounds by them, by their own hand to us, either emotionally or physically. Or we can be wounded and are wounded in this world because our corruptible bodies, we are existing in a fallen world. And every, all of this can impact us and cause wounds. But we have a great physician who heals and he mends and he restores. And he, take the, he takes all of the wounds within us or upon us. He takes all of those wounds active, causing us pain, causing us these dysfunctions and disquietude within us. And if, he, if we let him, he will heal the wounds. And when Jesus Christ touches and he heals... The wounds are healed. But there's a reality. The scars remain. Just like they did upon him. 
but scars remaining are not continuing suffering. They're the testimony of the healer and the healing. Now, we can think about very easy, that very easily from a physical sense. But let's talk about it from an emotional or a spiritual sense. And I give you Isaiah, for example. One of my favorite scriptures is Isaiah 6. When Isaiah gets that incredible vision of the heavenly tabernacle, the eternal tabernacle, and he sees, if you remember, he describes the train of the robe of God is filling the temple. And when he sees all of that perfection, what does he see in himself? I'm not that. And he falls on his face before God, before this perfection in repentance. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips and an unclean heart. This is what's revealed in light of that perfection to him. And he repents. And we find out that our Lord... that. God has an angel take a coal from the altar and he goes right to the source of his wounding from the fallenness. He goes right to his lips. And he touches his lips and he restores him. And then, after healing and restoring, always remember what God then asked of him. Who will I send who will be my mouthpiece? And he said, Lord, here I am, send me. You've got to see the reversal. What was his greatest grievous sin? His mouth. From what does the mouth speak? The heart. And our Lord healed both, and then he takes the greatest wounding in, in Isaiah, and by healing it, he turns it into the greatest proclamation of God's healing, restoration, forgiveness, and mercy. And Isaiah now becomes the one who speaks from the heart of God through his mouth. And his words are the prophetic voice of God for that generation. Isaiah, do you see how Isaiah's healing led to a scar that proclaimed and testified the rest of his days of the healing work of God, even in his own life? And the same thing is true for absolutely every one of us. We have the wounds. Christ heals. And the rest of our life, the scars remain in us for two reasons. The scar in my soul testifies to me like a standing stone. Remember those standing stones? When God did something marvelous, God's people Israel set up stones to remember what He did. And the scars in my own life of the, all the many things that Christ has healed so far in my own soul, they proclaim to me when I get weary in my faith, I return to what God has done and I look at my own scars. And secondly, through our lives, the testimony, not only to, the testimony is not only to us, but the testimony of those healed scars, the testimony to one another, and the testimony to a world where they can look upon us and see what Christ has healed. You know, when you look at someone who has heart surgery, you can tell if you see somebody's chest, we know what happened to them and what healing occurred. And that same thing is true with the spiritual scars, emotional scars, physical scars that Christ healed. They testify to us, to one another, and to this world of the healing work of Christ. And they testified to a Christ who has risen from the dead. Right? Very good. So let's look now. Let's turn our attention to the commissioning of the disciples. 
Because if we read this scripture verse, this passage too quickly, we miss one of the most profound things that Jesus does in this moment in those closed doors appearing after the resurrection with his disciples. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Listen to what our Lord's saying. What Christ is telling his disciples as he commissions them is really worthy of our consideration. Because the first thing he says is this Jesus tells them, As the Father sent me. The language is this. In the same way that the Father sent me to you for salvation. As the Father sent me, I send you. Catch the relationship. An equal relationship of sending and being sent with power and authority and wisdom and the mind of Christ. This is how they're being sent. In the same way, He's now sending them in that power and wisdom and authority to be His healing in the earth and the outreaching of salvation to souls that need to be healed and restored from the fall. St. Peter Chrysologus, Bishop of Ravenna, early in the 5th century, the mention of his having been sent does not diminish him as son, but declares that what he wants to be understood here is not the power of the one who sins, but the charity that is the love of the one who has been sent. This is why he says, just as the Father, not the Lord, has sent me, so I send you. In other words, I send you no longer with the authority of a master, but I send you with the affection of someone who loves you. Did you catch that? When the Father sent the Son, it was not an authoritarian move. When the Father sent the Son, it was the heart of the love of the Father, both for the Son and those who He was sending the Son to, that the Son was sent to come and bring the dead back to life. And the same thing is being said here from Jesus to His disciples. It is Jesus' love for His disciples, not His authoritarian. Yes, He has authority. That's not a question. But this sending is a measure of love for them and a measure of love for this world to express himself through them. That's what he's saying. And it's that ministry that continues to this very day. St. Cyril of Alexandria. Christ says that he sent the apostles, even as the Father had sent him, that they might fully comprehend their mission to call sinners to repentance and to minister to those who were caught up in evil, whether of body or soul, in all their dealings on this earth, they were not in any way to follow their own will, but the will of Him who sent them, just like the Son to the Father. They were also called to save the world by their teaching as far as it was possible. And in truth, we shall find that the holy disciples were eager to show the utmost enthusiasm in performing these things. And then the next statement he makes as he sends them, as he breathes on them and grants them the authority of the Holy Spirit for this, it really is a wonder what he says next. He tells them, He who sins 
you forgive are forgiven. And he whose sins you retain, they are retained. St. Theodore of Mopsastia. What truly wonderful gifts. Indeed, it does not only give the power over the elements and the faculty to make signs and wonders, but also concedes that God may name them judges. And therefore the servants receive from Him the authority that is proper to Him. The prerogative to absolve and retain sins only belongs to God. And the Jews, and this is the Jews during the early church, sometimes raised objections with the Savior saying, Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Lord generously gave this authority to those who honored Him. And by the way, this would be just the beginning of something that Christ would fulfill eternally. In Matthew 19 and St. Luke chapter 22, our Lord Jesus Christ says something profound about the apostles. He said, you, along with me in heaven, will sit on thrones judging God's people. That's an amazing thing. This is the authority that Christ gave His church. Understand this. Just like Jesus' authority was not apart from the Father, but eternally joined to the Father. And the ministry was the same way. In the same way, Jesus and the apostles, those who had become apostles, the ministry is not separate. The apostles going off doing what they want just in the name of Jesus. It was Jesus' ministry in and through them as they submitted their will to Him. Just as Jesus submitted His will to the Father. Are you seeing this incredible relationship? And you know, I promise you this. When I grew up in Protestantism, I didn't have the foggiest idea what to do with this. This idea of men forgiving sins is something that was so out of any dynamic, of any construct of faith that was there for me in Protestantism and in the church. I see it fulfilled perfectly. And I understand it fully. Because the church is the body of Christ. Jesus had a body on earth and through it He healed, He forgave sins, He gave mercy, He cast out demons. I could go on and on of what Christ did through a body. Christ is still doing it through a body. That body is the church and the apostles are that... As Jesus would say in Revelation, the church is founded on on the apostles with Him as the cornerstone. This continuing ministry of fleshing out the giving out of mercy and the withholding it for those who are not repentant. It continues even today in Christ's holy church. And I tell you this, may that shed a little bit new light on the sacrament of confession. What happens in the sacrament of confession? The priest who has been laid hands on by a bishop who is in the order of the apostles for that ministry, which means for the ministry of the distribution and the experience of the profound mercy of God that covers sins, but also the calling of people to repentance continues to flow through the church in this manner. The sacrament of confession, my friends, is not a good idea. The sacrament of confession is something God said is necessary. And we need to see this. We need to stop playing around from wherever we came from from before and how we see confession This is where Christ ensures that you will walk away with your sins forgiven. 
through his ministry of in the church. And so we don't neglect that ministry. We come to Christ because, again, the priest isn't Christ. The bishop isn't Christ. But Christ has joined them so much to himself as just with the rest of the body that through them this ministry comes. And that is not by man's design. Listen to his words. Just as the Father sent me, I send you. Whenever you forgive sins, I tell you they're forgiven. Okay. Now, hear this very quickly. Think about the load of responsibility that is on bishops and priests. Because there's a big key for us that we listen intently to the heart of God on what to convey and minister to you in those moments. And that's why there are certain prayers we pray as preparation. I pray prayers. Every priest and bishop prays prayers to prepare them to hear someone's confession. And a lot of that has to do with give me your heart for them. That's how I would sum up the prayer. Share your mind with, with me over this person, this, this beloved child of yours. But that's what's going on in the sacrament of confession. And again, in that sacrament, uh, I always like to remind people that when you hear me say in, in Eucharist, just before we're about to take Eucharist, let all come who have had a recent confession, please always remember that doesn't mean last week. Remember what Patriarch John in that line of the apostles has given us in Antioch of all those churches that are under him. A recent confession means that you have come to Christ for the sacrament of confession in Advent and in Lent at a minimum during the penitential seasons. That's what a recent confession is. But that's not the only time you can come. That's the minimum that we're called to come to Christ in this way. When do we come to confession after that? When you are grieved by your sin and you've cried out to the Lord for mercy and you believe intellectually He's given you mercy but you walk away from crying out still feeling profoundly guilty. Well, don't sit there in your humanity and the brokenness for whatever reason you can't receive the mercy. Don't just sit there in it. Come, let's go. Let's go to Jesus in the sacrament of confession where by grace He administers His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy, okay? And so that's how we look at confession. And when we talk about the sending of the disciples who would become apostles, I mentioned at the end of the service today that the prayers that were prayed over Metropolitan Saba at his enthronement in our archdiocese to be our spiritual father were this commissioning times ten. It's all in the spirit of this commissioning and it was, it was prayers for everything that this man would need from Christ to do this role in shepherding this archdiocese. And I was profoundly impacted. In fact, Korea Debbie, who also we watched it, and she told me afterwards what struck, one of the things that struck her, struck me, that as part of the enthronement ceremony itself within all of the prayers, Metropolitan Saba was presented a staff. And the staff, the expression in the giving of the staff is that just as Moses had a staff to lead God's people out of bondage through the waters of the Red Sea, crushing the enemy and bringing them to paradise, to the, whole, to the holy land, the promised land, just as Moses, you are commissioned to do this for your people. 
But then listen to what was followed up right after that prayer. I'm summarizing. And you will be judged higher than all whether you do it from the heart of God or your own humanity. That really was the sentiment. That was the prayer. And that is what the apostles, patriarchs, metropolitans, bishops in that line of apostolic ministry that begins right here with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ would be fulfilled at Pentecost. This is what they carry. This is the charge that they bear. This is the responsibility they have. And this is how they will be judged before God. There's a reason I want to verbalize this. Because I want to speak a word for our time right now about this continuing ministry of Christ through the apostles in this day. I have watched over the course of almost this last 10 years of being a priest. I have watched the faithful. I've watched priests. I've seen myself do this get very up in arms at times over what a patriarch does, over what a few patriarchs may do or say, what one bishop, what a few priests might say, or maybe even some of the faithful saying, and so on. I have seen people get very up in arms over these things. And I, the greatest thing I try to help them with that I'm going to share with you today is the appropriate Christian response when something like that happens. When we see a patriarch do something that raises our eyebrow or say something that we I didn't think that was right. How do we respond? How do we respond? Especially as Americans, because we know what Americans do. We go dump the patriarch's tea into the sea. That's what we do. That's our response. Overthrow him! Right? The problem is that's not the Christian response. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. We have a responsibility when we see things that we question, whether we understand them fully or not, or something that outright rubs us wrong. We do bear a responsibility as, ordina as our ordination as a kingdom of priests, and I want to talk about this. And I pray that what I share with you might bring you, again, some real perspective over the 2,000 years of the church, not just recently, and perhaps from that bring you some peace and help you find your place when things get a little turbulent from time to time. Because what I, I will tell you this right now. There has never been a generation in the 2,000 years of the church where there wasn't turbulence because of these kind of things. And we act as if it's never happened before because everything until this age, everything's been perfect in the church. Baloney. The faith has been perfect. The behaviors never have. Because as soon as God put a human in the garden, things went kind of weird. Right? All right. So, first thing I want to mention to you. Don't you think when Christ commissioned apostles, these, these disciples who had become apostles, don't you think he knew the potential problems when he entrusted the faith and the sacraments to mortal men that were just in need of salvation as the faithful? Of course he did. And there's never been a time, like I said, starting day one, that Satan and the demonic have not been on full assault trying to introduce false teachings and bringing up behaviors that are not like Christ in the church and all trying to stir up the faithful 
to have divisions. That's what he's always about. Remember, Satan is always divisive. Christ, our God, is the unifier. They're opposites. And as I said, almost every generation of the church has seen these types of things. And yet, throughout the entire 2,000 years of the church, these actions get corrected. The faith never changed. These things fade away without impact to our faith, and false teachings have never been accepted for 2,000 plus years in the church. And right now, like I said, there are actions of patriarchs that are raising eyebrows and some teachings coming, like I said, from bishops or some priests and their podcasts and all different kinds of stuff that are creating sectarianism. Sectarianism, divisions. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow this podcaster. I follow that. Okay? And I watch parishioners... And I have to watch my own soul because I promise you, all of us can fall into this. By the way, this flock is the only one that God's given me charge over. And so I speak specifically to things that I see in it out of love for it so that it knows how to deal in these situations and how to embrace these things. And we get agitated and fearful and anxious, even showing anger and raising fists. I've, I've heard some horrible things said about patriarchs. People who don't even know the patriarchs know what's behind it or anything else because they've heard this and heard that. It raises up our human spirits. Part, the part of the humanity that needs to be healed is what it raised up. And while I cannot ever force behaviors, just like you can't force me to be Christ-like, I have the responsibility to guide and love and direct you in these times. And they're growing upon us where we need to know how to walk through them. Okay? It's a more intense time at the moment. And so the first thing is this. I offer the peace of Christ to those struggling. Again, for 2,000 years plus, the church, by the way, has endured far worse than what anybody's seeing today. Far worse behaviors from even... How many of you saw a man of God? Okay, some of you saw a man of God about St. Nectarios. That time in Alexandria, the other bishops, his fellow bishops, really treated him horribly. He was dismissed among them. He was exiled back to Greece. Okay? There have been many times in the church where these behaviors have been far worse than anything that we're seeing today. But I want to tell you something. What I just said, believe it or not, is the very reason I am in the church. Because I spent 10 years of master's level studies looking at the church, the first thousand years of the church, and I was horrendously appalled at some of the behaviors that I saw in the whole church, not just the leadership, people as well. But you know what? Despite that human behavior, that faith remained unchanged. And I couldn't make any sense of that because our fallen human behaviors and our fallenness will constantly change things to our thinking. And yet with all of that behaviors and fallenness and the trying to introduce false teachings, God preserved His church for 2,000 years. And what I'm saying to you is 
Why, do you, why are you worried? Why are you struggling in anxiousness about what you see in this behavior or this statement or that statement when Christ has been preserving his church faithfully and said that he always will? And he also said something very critical. He didn't say that the gates of hell one day will prevail against the church. He said the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And so have the peace of knowing the church has been through this and far worse and God is the preserver and the protector of the faith and the faithful. Secondly, what do we do when our eyebrows raise because of the actions of a hierarch or some teaching we feel is questionable? We do one thing and we do one thing only. And it's the only thing that all of us who are not hierarchs and bishops, have been ordained by Jesus Christ by virtue of our baptism to do. We take our place and we intercede for that, hate, that patriarch, that hierarch, the people under him. And we, prayer the, we pray the prayers that God has given us to pray for his church, that he keep it whole and sanctified and that he purify it and that he keep it as one body. And that's where you're going to find your peace. Not in reveling and in being in groups that are against everything and rising up, but in prayer and in fellowship with God, taking your place as that priest to pray for them. That's where you find it. And I have one slight admonishment in case, because I'm telling you, this admonishment came to me first because I've done this. One slight admonishment. The Lord said to his, to his apostles, remember in the Matthew and the Luke uh, that I mentioned, that they would sit with him on thrones to judge. He did not make that statement to me, and he didn't make it to you. Our role is not to judge, but to pray for. It doesn't mean we don't discern. It doesn't mean that we don't question but we don't take on a judgmental heart and spirit as though we know everything in the mind of God. We have to be very careful of that. But I see a lot of that judgment that is happening in orthodoxy, particularly in America these days. And I see teachers who are spurring up judgment against hierarchs. They will be put down. God has always seen it, given wisdom, and put them aside for their repentance and restoration out of love for them and out of love for his body. Okay? But we don't stand on that judgment throne. In fact, I would have you embrace the words of St. Paisios. If you want to help the church in this day and age with some of the things you see going on out there, if you want to help the church, it's better to try to correct yourself rather than looking to correct others. You see, judging others is easy, whereas working on yourself takes effort. God will keep his church. Never failed, never will. And how can we assist him? By judging only that which is within our own soul with his wisdom. By our, by our living a life of repentance, letting Christ mend and transform us praying for those hierarchs that make no mistake the Lord is placed in those roles. And know this, when hierarchs don't repent, 
who will they stand before? God. In a more severe way than we will. You need to understand that. That's why we pray for our hierarchs. It's a lack of love if we don't. They need those prayers. They need those prayers. You understand what I'm trying to get across to you. You are living in a world where internet orthodoxy is off the rails. The internet has been the best and worst thing for orthodoxy. It's been one of the best things because many people can see and taste something that they never had an experience of and it's bringing them into the church. You know, if there was a teacher that was teaching in a certain way back in the early church, it only impacted that little region. Today, if somebody's doing that on the internet, everybody can see it. And we don't all have the wisdom to judge all these things that are out there. In fact, if you really want peace, and I, listen, I know you're, you're not going to hear me say don't ever listen to teachings on the Internet. What I am going to say is this. The Internet is not the way that the faith was preserved for 2,000 years. You know how the faith was preserved for 2,000 years? Take the Internet out of it. A faithful people lived in a parish with a priest that a bishop had put there because he couldn't be there, and he was there because a metropolitan couldn't be everywhere, and a patriarch couldn't be everywhere. It was preserved through the life of the church. And every time it's gone astray a little bit in different areas, God always has a way of bringing it back. You keep your peace by living out the faith, letting Christ heal your own soul and praying for your leadership. That makes sense. So when you start lacking peace because you're hearing discussions or you're hearing certain teachings out there, first of all, always check the te- bring the teachings to me. I'll even send you to other priests just, to, just so you feel even better about it. But find yourself in prayer over this, that the Lord keeps His church because we are at a critical time in history where so many souls truly are coming into the ark of salvation And Satan is amping up the work to divide it, which he will not succeed at, but it's going to cause us headaches. So we take take the Advil of prayer, as I call it, for those headaches. We go before God, keep ourselves in Him, being healed, and loving one another. Does that make sense? Okay. I tell you what, I'm going to be honest with you. We are at the time... And we're not going to make it to Galilee this time. I'm sorry. I know I'll get you a Kleenex if you're weeping. But I think that's a good place to close for today. Okay? Let's stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all.